We're thankful to be back together this afternoon, and uh, for those of you who were able to be with us for lunch, enjoy a wonderful meal together. Thanks to all those who labored in the preparation of the food and setting everything up. It was, it was a great time to get to visit. We're continuing our study in the book of Proverbs uh, this afternoon, and we will, during the evening services and the concluding services on Sunday, Lord willing, this week, wisdom for life, direction from God. And this morning and this afternoon, our studies are introductory in nature to introduce us to the book of Proverbs and talk about practical strategies of how to approach the book to glean more from its pages. And I think one of the challenges that we face in looking at Proverbs and properly applying Proverbs is one of the questions that invariably surfaces as well, but Proverbs is the Old Testament. And so because when Christ died, he nailed Moses' law to the cross, and then therefore it's not binding today. And I believe that that represents improper thinking about the, the book of Proverbs. I do, I do not believe that Proverbs is an expression of the Mosaic law. Okay, I don't. I don't believe that at all. I believe Proverbs is an expression of general truths that have been true and remain true throughout every age of time, whether we're talking about the patriarchal age, you know, the time from creation up to the giving of Moses' law, or whether we're talking about the Mosaic age from Moses up to the time of Christ, or whether we're talking about the Christian age, the time from when Christ died and ratified his new covenant and did away with Moses' law up until this very day. I believe the truths that are taught in Proverbs are timeless and equally applicable to every age. You may see that differently, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to pressure you to change your thinking without proper evidence. So just think about it as we study these things together. Romans 15 and verse 4, <coughs> Paul talking about things that were written under what we think of as the Old Testament, the patriarchal age, the mosaical age, he said whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So whether you see Proverbs as an expression of Moses' law or not, we can all agree based on the truth of this passage that everything written back then was written for our learning. The book of Leviticus <laughs> you know, with all of its mosaic rituals, was written for our learning. We can glean truths from the book of Deuteronomy. And I'll try to show an example or two this, this afternoon in our study to illustrate how that works. But if, if we take it beyond that and see Proverbs in a way that I think is with greater precision, we recognize it as a timeless book <coughs> that's equally true for every age. <coughs> in Proverbs you will find no references to the Sabbath law, which was a Mosaic edict. They were commanded to keep the Sabbath holy. If, if there's any mention of it, it's escaped my search. It contains no reference to Hebrew holidays of, that I'm aware of at all. I'm looking for them. Hadn't been able to find them. Maybe you could find them. It contains no reference to Mosaic sacrifice rituals. You might find some inference to some manner of sacrifice in a generic way, which we make today with our singing. It's the fruit of our lips, isn't that what the Bible tells us? But as far as a specifically Mosaic ritual sacrifice, nothing is mentioned in Proverbs about that. It contains no reference to other things that are exclusive to Moses' law, again, that I'm aware of. Maybe you could find something that I've overlooked. But in looking at Proverbs that way, that's why I back away and say, wait a minute, 
This, this is not a book that's reiterating what Moses' law taught. <clears throat> when you go into the Psalms, you'll find things mentioned there that relate to Mosaic rituals. When you go into the prophets, you'll find things that are based on things taught exclusively there in Moses' law. We don't find that in Proverbs. What we do find are general truths that are timeless in their application. Let's think about this idea of timeless truths, and let's illustrate with Scripture how this functions. Consider 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9 and 10, where Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, more or less defending his apostolic credentials and his role in the Lord's work and a person's uh, freedom or opportunity to receive support for the kind of work that Paul did. He appealed to Moses' law. 1 Corinthians 9, now verse 9 and 10. He said, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now that citation of Moses' law is from Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4. Don't muzzle an ox while it treads out in the grain. And Paul cites that passage from Moses' law and says, is this really just about oxen? Now, was Moses teaching them to not be cruel to their beasts of burden? Absolutely. And Proverbs speaks to that issue. Proverbs says a righteous man considers the life of his beast. Okay, so there's an ethic in not being pointlessly brutal, you see, to these animals. And here's this oxen that helps in, in being a beast of burden. He helps you produce a crop of grain. So it's only right that he gets to eat some of that grain. Now, seated in that idea <clears throat> is this timeless truth that you reap what you sow. That if somebody works for, uh, to, to produce a certain outcome, it's right and proper for them to receive a wage comparable to the work that they've done. And you'll find that kind of thing demonstrated or overtly taught in the patriarchal age, the mosaical age, the Christian age. That is a timeless truth, reaping what you sow. And that timeless truth is expressed in a number of different ways in every age of man in the truth that God has revealed to us. And that timeless truth is the underpinning of Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4. Because this oxen has worked to sow the grain or produce this crop, it's only right that he should be able to enjoy some of the fruits of that crop. Okay? And Paul takes that general principle up, that timeless truth, and he applies it to a churchman receiving support for the work that he does. In, in particular, the idea that he would theoretically have the right to receive support that he did through congregations such as Corinth. So he's saying there's more there than just the technical regulation for the oxen, but there's the timeless truth that that is based upon. So to put it <clears throat> sort of in a diagram maybe that we can sink our teeth into, you've got the patriarchal age ending when Moses went on Mount Sinai to receive Moses' law. You've got the mosaical age ending at the cross when Christ nailed that law to the cross. And then you have the Christian age. And then during those times, there are all these truths that are timeless truths, moral principles that have been true expressions of God's character throughout time.
okay? When you go in and read the stories and the precepts that are spoken during the patriarchal age, those things often <clears throat> contain expressions of truth that are part of these timeless truths. You'll find the same thing in Moses' law. When you study the law, when you study where the prophets reiterated portions of the law, you'll see there that it's based on expressions of these timeless truths. I just gave you an example of that from Deuteronomy. Don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. That is a specific you know, legal statement of how you treat your farm animals that's based on the timeless truth of it's proper to reap what you sow. Okay? And that timeless truth was there before Deuteronomy was ever spoken or written. And that timeless truth is still there after the, the, the ritual laws of Moses that are taught in Deuteronomy were nailed to the cross. Well, those same things feed into the new covenant. And so, backing up real quick to that diagram, think of the book of Proverbs as being in that region of timeless truths. And think of the truths of Proverbs feeding into the new covenant. And in that sense... <clears throat> It's as, as appropriate to study the book of Proverbs as it would be to study any other book of the New Testament. It's not because it's a new covenant book, it's because its truths are timeless. And that's the approach that I think is a constructive approach to the study of Proverbs, and I would ask you to consider that. But even if you look at that and say, no, David, I reject that. It was written during the Mosaical Age by a, a man of Israel. It's, it's law of Moses. Okay, fine. Romans 15 and 4 still says it's there for our learning and we can glean truths from this. I believe this is a biblical way to draw out those truths in a way that's accurate with and fair with the context of Scripture. Now, let's look at some example applications of Proverbs to the New Covenant. Romans chapter 12, verse 20, talks to us about how we treat our enemies and our struggle to, to deal with difficult people. He said, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Somebody says, oh, that's, that's love your enemies. I, I know where that started. That started in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Well, he certainly popularized it in the Sermon on the Mount towards the end of Matthew chapter 5. That's not where it started. That character ethic of how you treat your enemy is a timeless truth of God. You'll find it spoken in Moses' law. You'll find it taught in the New Covenant. We just did. You'll find it expressed in the book of Proverbs. In fact, Romans 12 appears to be quoting Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You see, Proverbs expresses a truth that is without uh, boundary of uh, specifically being attached to one law or the other. It's part of a greater body of right and wrong that's been a character expression of God's character and his will for our conduct since creation until this very day. Now, as far as I can find, there are eight instances like this where the New Testament cites or quotes the book of Proverbs. So let's look at another one or two. Second Peter 2, verse 22 talking about somebody who had escaped the pollution of the world through Christ and had chosen to turn back to sin and give their lives back over to sin. He said, regarding that kind of person, 
but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. <clears throat> really, really visibly unpleasant you know, picture that he paints here. And anybody that's had dogs or been around them has, has seen them do this, and it's very distasteful when you see that happen. Now, somebody that's a specialist in animal science may know all the rhyme and the reason why a dog might do that. And frankly, you and I, in this moment of picturing that, really don't care what their reasons are. I don't want to watch. What a powerful image God calls to my mind to say that's what you look like when you give yourself over back, you go back and you give yourself over to the habit of sin. Well, that timeless truth is taught in Proverbs, probably specifically referenced with the wording of 2 Peter 2 and 22. As a dog turns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And that keys back into the, the double theme of Proverbs. Wisdom and its associated virtues and folly and its associated vices. And those character ethics being an expression of God's character. That's Proverbs in a nutshell. And that particular ethic there of don't turn back to the folly of being a fool, implying instead cherish wisdom and walk accordingly, that ethic is what Peter pulls from, drawing from Proverbs a timeless truth. It's not specific to Moses' law. That's always been true, you see. <clears throat> so, I mentioned the eight instances. I've got them listed here on the screen if you want to just glance at that for academic purposes. Where the Proverbs reference is followed by the LXX, that's Septuagint, it appears there that the New Testament passage is quoting the Septuagint version of, of the Proverbs, which is just a Greek translation of the Old Testament that roughly dates a couple of hundred years before Christ. So that's a cataloging of the eight places that I could find where Proverbs is quoted in the New Testament and those timeless truths are applied. So I hope that illustrates the idea Whatever you conclude about Proverbs with respect to Moses' law, whether you agree with my conclusion that it's really not an expression of Moses' law or whether you think of it as a reiteration in some way of Mosaic truth, whichever approach you take, at the end of the day, we see a book that speaks to us today that's written for our learning. And we can take its practical wisdom and its practical truths and we are well within the right of, of Scripture teaching Okay, to apply it that way because we found these different New Testament writers who under the direction of the Spirit did that very thing. You know, the Spirit didn't interrupt, you know, Paul when he was writing to the Romans and say, wait a minute, that's Moses' law, don't, don't be quoting that. Okay, the Spirit didn't interrupt whoever wrote Hebrews or James or Peter writing in their respective books and say, wait a minute, throw on the brakes, Proverbs was before the cross, can't use that. Instead, he inspired those writers to make proper usage of those timeless truths, those practical principles to speak to us about our walk with Christ today. All right. Now let's talk about the nature of Proverbs. I was trying to mentally put this together in a timeline. I've been married 35 years as of a few days ago. 
is before I got married, so probably about 36 years ago, I was working in this part of Texas, and I was staying with Brother Roy and Sister Katie Hazelton. And Roy said, I want to talk to you about Proverbs. Well, great. I was already ready for him to teach, and he did a lot of that with the young men that he was around. He said, you need to understand the nature of a proverb. Proverbs are not a statement of an absolute truth that has no exception. Proverbs are a statement of a general principle that generally holds true. And to illustrate his point, he gave this passage in Proverbs 18 and 22. He said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Okay. So Brother Roy said, all right, you know anybody that's found a wife that has not been blessed by that? And I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> I know some that's wrecked their life. He said, you see, that's just a general truth. Generally speaking, a man's blessed to be married. You know what timeless truth that states? It states the timeless truth that God stated at creation when he looked at Adam and said, it's not good that man should be alone. This is a repetition of that same truth. You know, Jesus repeated that same truth in his gospel instructions. And that same concept is repeated by Paul in the book of Ephesians, isn't it? Because you see, it's timeless. It's not exclusive to Moses' law or the patriarchal age or the Christian age. It's just always been that way, and it's going to be that way until the end of time. So as a general rule, it's a good thing to find marriage. That is a blessing from God. But in 1 Kings 18 and verse 4, look at who we've got here. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and 15 uh, excuse me, 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and he had fed them with bread and water. All right, who's Jezebel? Well, that's Ahab's wife. When he found Jezebel, did he find a good thing? <laughs> did God favor that union? Well, of course not. Jezebel is a universal symbol of a terrible woman. Some people that aren't even familiar with the Old Testament story about this queen We'll talk about, disparagingly, talk about a woman and say, well, she's a real Jezebel. Now, I'm not saying, you know, whether we should or shouldn't say that. That's just people understand that a real Jezebel is a really bad woman. And here's a guy who found a wife, and it wasn't good. And it made him a worse man. And so that illustrates that the proverb is never intended to state a principle that stands without exception, but a general truth of life. And if you understand that, you'll appreciate more of the pr truths that are taught in the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to tell you something. It does not weaken the force of a proverb at all. It never weakens the force of a principle to correctly understand how God expects us and intends for us to understand it. That never weakens it. That always strengthens it. And it's always strengthened when I learn to see it the way God wants me to see it. And if God wants me to see that as a general axiom of life, then it's stronger in its application to me if that's exactly how I see it. Okay? So let's keep going. So here's another example. In Proverbs 11 and 16, a gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. <clears throat> Do you know any ruthless men that are dead broke? <laughs> I do. 
I know some that are homeless. They don't have anything. The point of the Proverbs is not to say or affirm that it's always true that ruthless men always get wealthy. That's not the point. The point is to say being a spiritual person, a gracious woman, reaps a benefit that is meaningful and lasting, and that benefit is honor. But the shallow pursuit of meaningless wealth in this life is the only reward that the sinner has. It's a lot like teachings we find in the New Testament that teach us about how it's not wealth and life that matters most. What matters most are our spiritual pursuits. What did Jesus say about it in the Sermon on the Mount? Some of you have already thought of Matthew 6. I can see it in your eyes. And you're thinking, you know, these are they're corruptible treasures here on earth. Thieves break through and steal, moth and rust corrupt. And so why lay up those treasures? Instead, I need to lay up treasures in heaven. You're thinking about that. Same truth that's stated here. So when I approach this proverb, not looking for an unyielding mathematical axiom, but instead looking for a general truth that underpins that, this timeless precept, you see, then I understand this is teaching me to pursue what matters most in life, honor above riches. It's teaching me to pursue that, and it's teaching me how to pursue that. If we could stop and just think about that for a moment, when you go out and you conduct business, no amount of extra wealth you can gain by dishonorable conduct is worth surrendering your honor. Your honor rests on you being an honest and ethical person. And you will constantly face opportunities to be dishonest and unethical and make a little bit more money, and you are losing when you do that. You are losing. Okay? So I want you to really, really think about that. That is part of the wealth and the wellspring of precious truth that undergirds this passage. Now let's talk about Proverbs that are raised or topics, rather, that are raised in the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> you can go into a, a book like the, the book of, of Romans, and you can, you know, build a set of chapter notes and have chapter studies, because, you know, the ongoing succession of verses unfolds some sort of story or a doctrinal treatise or something like that. And Proverbs is really unique in that it doesn't do that. How, how, do, how do you build a sermon on, a, you know, chapter four of Proverbs that's got this random smattering of all these ethical precepts that are taught. That's very challenging. Proverbs, it seems to me like, is it's easier to approach it thematically and think of these clusters of topics and clusters of ideas, okay? So the, the parent topic, the, the overarching topic of Proverbs is God. And wisdom is the expression of God's character and his way of relating to man and man's way of relating back to him. And then folly is the opposite of that. So folly is the departure from God. And then so from wisdom, you've got these wise ethics, these virtues that wisdom promotes and encourages. And then from foolishness or folly, you've got these destructive vices that come. Everything you find in the book of Proverbs can fit into that framework. God, wisdom and folly, virtues and vices. 
Every bit of it fits into that. So let's think of Proverbs topics in that way, and that will frame our study and approach this week. Proverbs 2, 6 through 7 says, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. So think of God giving wisdom. Who's on the receiving end of that? That's humankind. Okay? So he is a shield to the people who receive his wisdom. What is that? That's God blessing those who listen to him. That's God having a relationship with those who follow him. That's people interacting with God and the center point or the pivot point of that interaction and the relationship that follows is wisdom. So if we actively receive his wisdom that he actively gives to us, then pivoting on that wisdom, we have this relationship with God wherein he blesses us, he shields us. There's a sense of redemption in that. There's a redemptive relationship that we enjoy with God centering on wisdom. So in this sense, the wisdom of Proverbs is the basis of his interaction with his uh, creation in particular with mankind. Now, as I'm looking at that and I'm seeing wisdom in kind of a, almost a mediatorial role, I'm thinking, wait a minute, First Timothy 2 and 5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So how can wisdom be a pivot point of my relationship with God when Jesus Christ is the only mediator, the only person or thing that can join us with God? How can that be? If it's only Christ, but yet it's also wisdom. And the answer to that's very simple. Because Christ is wisdom. And wisdom is Christ. And some of you picked up a hint of that in this morning's study. One of the brethren at the end of services gave me the verse I'm about to use here in a couple of minutes that justifies that. And I said, that's what we're talking about this afternoon. So I want you to think about wisdom is the way that God relates to his creation because Christ is the man by whom God relates with his creation. So we've looked in Proverbs 8 briefly, and I'm about to analyze it more closely. We've looked in Proverbs 8 where wisdom is personified as a woman. And I'm going to show, remember, she's standing on the street and she's calling out to these guys and the idea is listen to this street corner woman, not the other street corner woman, okay? And I'm going to show you a comparison between that woman and Christ that's kind of remarkable if you think about it. Well, in the New Testament we read where Christ is the word incarnate, where Christ is the expression of God's wisdom. I'm, I'm showing you what we're about to read. And so as you look at these two things, understand that when we understand what Proverbs says about wisdom, we recognize a relationship or a, a commonality between wisdom and Christ. And then we begin to look at God's interaction with man, and we're seeing in Proverbs, God is interacting with man through wisdom. In the New Covenant, God is interacting with man through Christ. Those are not contradictory ideas. Those are beautifully harmonious ideas. Proverbs is giving you the pre-cross view. Jesus shows us that view in its full reality and explains how God has interacted with man through wisdom all along. It's been in his plan all along, that wisdom being Christ. Now, let's, 
Let's look at this. In Proverbs 8, we're going to begin at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting. From the beginning, before there was ever an earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. Doesn't that sound exactly like what the New Testament tells us about Jesus? Isn't that amazing? And you're saying, well, now, wait a minute. In Proverbs 8, though, that's wisdom personified as a woman. I know that. <laughs> and he also talks about wisdom being brought forth, and we know Christ was not created. I understand that. Maybe we're not talking about a precise identification, but a comparison between the two. I, you make up it how, however you want to see it. I'm just asking you to understand there's an incredible correlation in what Proverbs says about wisdom and what the New Testament reveals to us about the Son of God. And I want to show you how Proverbs implies the marriage of those two ideas. Let's keep digging. Proverbs 8 shows us what wisdom is. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24 and verse 30. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we could just stop right there and the case is closed. Christ is the wisdom of God. And Proverbs 8 expresses that wisdom in a poetically poetically personified as a female, as a woman. Verse 30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Had you ever noticed that before? I hadn't until I got to really studying Proverbs 8, and then it hit me in the face like a ton of bricks. All this that 1 Corinthians says about Christ being the wisdom of God. Now, look at it this way. We're struggling with, well, but why would Proverbs make wisdom a woman? And here in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's this idea. It's simple. In Proverbs, the task is to show the superiority of wisdom to the way of this foolish immoral woman. So to, to kind of counteract the woman of Proverbs 7, he presents wisdom as a woman to answer to that, you see. When you're in Corinth, you're dealing with the wisdom of man and all this Athenian wisdom culture and the philosophers and the, they had debate competitions at Corinth. It was part of the Isthmus Games. It was sort of like an Olympic type event where they didn't just do athletic competitions. They, they professionally argued. <laughs> and they were really into this, the, these ways of expressing wisdom. And so there, his job is not to contrast the wisdom from God with a woman, but here he's contrasting it with the worldly wisdom that prevailed in the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth. And so it's explained in different terms. But in both instances, we see Christ. 
In Proverbs, we see the creator that was there, adored by God and coming to adore humans that were created and helping God in the creation. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he just flatly says, it's Christ, y'all. That's who it is. All right, let's keep going. Colossians 2, verse 2 and 3, it talks about the knowledge of the ministry of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are all hidden, are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ, all the treasures of God's wisdom are hidden. They're there for us to discover. So when we develop a relationship with Christ, we are interacting with wisdom. And God then is interacting with us and we in our relationship with him through wisdom, through Christ. Okay, let's keep going. Proverbs 8 and 22 talked about wisdom there being the beginning of his way. What did he say in John 1 about Jesus? In the beginning was the word. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, and that's all about Christ. Going to Proverbs 8 and 23, he said, I've been from everlasting. What did he say in prophecy about Jesus? In Micah 5 and verse 2, the little baby that's born in Bethlehem, he said his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Isn't that amazing how much that's just like Christ? Go to Proverbs 8 and verse 30. I was beside him as a master craftsman. That's co-creator. He said, and I was daily his delight. John 17, 24, Jesus prayed, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. That's God delighting in wisdom before creation, the way it's portrayed in Proverbs. The exact same thing. Keep going. Proverbs 8 and 31, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. Wisdom, speaking here, personified, says, I was delighting in the sons of men. Psalm 16 and verse 3, another prophecy of Christ, his resurrection in particular, says, as for the saints, in whom is all my delight. Christ is always delighted in the children of God. That's why he died for us. That's why he broke the hold of the grave, as was foretold in Psalm 16. So, there's no question that we can draw a strong correlation between wisdom as it's pictured in Proverbs 8 and Christ as he's revealed to us in New Covenant Scripture. And so in that sense, Proverbs is about Jesus. And our relationship with God, our interaction with God, this redemptive re re uh, relationship wherein we enjoy the blessing of him being our shield as we've read promised, all of that is defined around wisdom. And as he comes to be known to us around Christ. Now, look at the idea of trusting God. What's the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs 9 and 10? He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, I want to show you something here. Number one, <clears throat> wisdom starts out with fearing God. Wisdom starts out with understanding I answer to God for my sin. Okay? So I've got accountability here that I've got to deal with. Number two, I want to ask you to notice the parallelism here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what else did he say? Knowledge of the Holy One, that's the beginning of wisdom, is understanding. Understanding corresponds with wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One corresponds with fear of the Lord. Who's the Holy One of Israel? You go back and read very many prophets talking about the coming of the Messiah, and you read about the Holy One. 
So in the parallelism of Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord corresponds with knowledge of the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't seen the parallelism. But the more we look at this, the more sense it makes. Because this patch is saying, hey guys, you've got to fear God. <clears throat> you've got sin to reckon with, and God judges sin, so you've got to be, that's a very foundational point of wisdom. Well, now look what he said about our sin in Proverbs 20 and verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. So Proverbs says, as a fundamental point of wisdom, I've got to understand I answer to God for my sin. And then later on he said, oh, by the way, you can't clean that yourself. Sounds like I need help. And it sounds like Proverbs is telling me I need help. And it sounds like Proverbs is telling me the key to my help is wisdom. Now, standing on the dark side of the cross, I might never figure out that's Jesus. But now living in the light of his will being illuminated to us, I can look back and say, so that's what he's talking about. <laughs> Just like all the other prophets. You can read through the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of those passages that are foretelling Christ. You may not get that first view of going through that. But when you look back at it from this side of the cross, it starts to add up. It becomes more clear. Okay? And that's what we're seeing here with the book of Proverbs. On the one hand, he says you need to fear God. You account to God for your sin. But on the other hand, he says you can't fix it yourself. So there's in that some idea I've got to trust God to reckon with my sin. Proverbs 30 and verse 4. This is where it really gets interesting. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you know. Did you ever notice that? He's talking about divine acts ascending into heaven, descending to the earth, gathering the wind, gathering the waters. Those are creative acts. That's an expression of power over creation. Some of that language you'll find in the book of Job where God is explaining to Job his creative power and the divine acts that emanate from his hands to show his might. And so this passage is asking, who is it that has all that divine power? Well, the answer is God. All right, well, what's his name? And what's his son's name? Now, if this is talking about God, and it is, because those are characteristics that are exclusively divine, then he's telling us in Proverbs 30 and verse 4 that the divine entity, God, has a son who has a name. That sounds an awful lot Jesus to me. Doesn't it sound that way to you? Now, does he come right out and say, hey, guys, I'm going to send my son of the world to die for your sins? It's not that obvious. I've just got this idea that, look, you've got sin that has to be reckoned with, and you can't take care of it yourself, so trust me. And, oh, by the way, all this divine power, I've got a son who has a name. So there's a hint in that that God is giving me something and someone where I can place my trust. The language of Proverbs 30 and verse 4 is strangely familiar to Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 and 12. Talking about Moses' law, he said, This commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? So he's basically saying, you, 
the divine power has provided this law. You don't have to sit here on earth and say, well, somebody's got to go up to heaven and get the law for us and bring it back down. He's saying God's done that for you. So the law is here with you and it's available to you. Now look at Paul's usage of that language in Romans 10, verse 6 through 8. The righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So in Romans 10, Paul is using the language of this passage in Deuteronomy 30. He's using the language of that passage to frame for us today. We don't have to say, ah, right, who's going to go to heaven and say, God, send us somebody to help us. He's already done it. We don't have to descend into the grave and come back out victorious over dead. God's already done it. Because you see, it's only divine power that can do that that can descend down from heaven to the earth or that can descend down into the pit of the grave. Only divine power can do that. Only divine power can gather the wind into his hands. Only divine power can gather the water into the garments, the way Proverbs 30 described. And that same divine power has a son. And when we piece these scriptures together, we see the picture more clearly. That divine power has a son and his name is Jesus and he's here with us in this redemptive work. Proverbs 30 and 4, divine power ascends into heaven and his, it talks about his name and his son's name. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 and 12, divine command, Moses' law. We don't have to ascend up to heaven to get it. He said, God's word is here with you. All right? And then you go to Romans chapter 10, the divine power to justify us or save us we don't have to ascend to heaven to get him because Christ has come. He's come and he's fulfilled the Lord's saving work. And that's a comparison between those three passages and the remarkable similarity of their wording. So we move forward into Proverbs with this idea that I've got a sin problem. I can't fix it myself, so I've got to trust God. What did he say in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord. How much? This book has introduced me to a problem I can't fix. How much do I trust in the Lord? With all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Within the pages of Proverbs is the heart-stilling, calming, quieting message that says, I've got this. I'm going to take care of it. The beginning of your wisdom is to fear me and to fear the consequence of sin. But you let me deal with it. Some do not trust God. Instead, they reject God. Proverbs 1, 29 and 30, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. These people chose not to fear God, and so what did they consequently do? They rejected wisdom. In essence, they rejected Christ. They couldn't fix their sin themselves, so they were without hope. You see that? Look at the way that it's put in Proverbs 17 and verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. You think about the criminal justice system and the prevalence of crime today and societal decay and all that. We're all concerned about those things. And everybody's got different ideas about what needs to be done to fix that. 
And, you know, whether those ideas are right or wrong is not my point. You know, there are some that would say our criminal justice system needs to go back to what it, you know, used to be. It's, you know, really hard on those guys and harsh punishments for these crimes to make the punishment fit the crime and all that. No, okay. All right, let's, let's say that. But this passage says, you know, some people, you can beat them on the back a hundred times and they won't listen. Some people reject God so hard that they go to a point where they're beyond reach. And you can't reach them. You can't reason with them. Why? Because they reject reason. They reject wisdom. So the point then becomes clear. The further you get away from wisdom, the greater degree to which you reject wisdom, the greater degree to which you reject God's Son, His name is Jesus, the only hope of reckoning with our sin. And so when we embrace the truth of Proverbs, it's more than just becoming this ethical person that makes a great neighbor, okay? You reject everything that its wisdom implies, including I've got a sin problem that I can't fix and I've got to trust God to handle that. And because Christ has come and revealed himself in the new covenant will of Christ, now I know what the fix is to that sin problem. What Proverbs only faintly said in a soft whisper, I now see clearly in the person and work of Christ. And if I reject the ethics of Proverbs, I'm rejecting the ethical expression of God's Son and therefore rejecting God's Son. And so I've got to have Christ, which means I've got to have the ethics to which Proverbs guides us. So in Proverbs you have God, you have the discussion of God's character traits versus this idea of rejecting God and his character traits. God's character traits in Proverbs are expressed as wisdom and knowledge and the virtues that come from that. The rejection of God then becomes folly or the rejection of wisdom and the vices that come from that. That is the roadmap for our studies this week. Is what Proverbs says about wisdom and about folly and about the virtues and the vices that follow that. And when we understand that course in the way that it's revealed in Proverbs in light of what the New Testament teaches, we understand God's, uh, maybe I could say, philosophical expression of his son Christ through these ethics. So wisdom for life, then, is wisdom for eternal life, isn't it? And our only hope of eternal life is Jesus Christ. And we've seen this afternoon how that is inferred in the pages of Proverbs. So I hope you're thinking about that as you think about your soul. Are you ready to meet the Lord in judgment? If you have Christ as your Savior, then you have received the help that God supplies. But if you have not embraced him in obedience to the gospel, then till now you've rejected the wisdom of God that would rescue you. Do that no longer. Come to Christ today. And if we can assist you in that, we would love to do so. Or if as a Christian you need the church to pray for you, we'd love to help you in that way. If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing.